You are listening to the I Am In podcast produced by the Boise Nampa Institute of Religion. We've asked members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to share how their lives have been blessed by living the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the Savior's request, come follow me, they have all responded, I am in. We are excited to hear from Dan Thompson. He is a financial advisor, investor, business owner, and educator. Born and raised in Modesta, California with two brothers and two sisters, he played water polo, loved to snow ski and water ski. Dan served a church mission in Columbia, South Carolina, and throughout his life he has served in numerous callings with the majority being in the Young Men's Program. Dan became a financial advisor in 1986. His main purpose is to empower and educate families and business owners to control and manage their financial future. Owner and founder of Wise Money Tools, Eagle Capital Management, Becoming Your Own Bank, and Oakmont Signature Homes, he constantly provides strategies and ideas for anyone to succeed financially. Dan is an advocate for the church's principle of clean living and pursuing a healthy, active lifestyle. He has always put God first in his life and constantly trying to communicate and listen to God's will is foremost in his life. He believes in helping and serving others and has his own nonprofit, Peace and Prosperity, which helps single moms become financially independent and improve their situations. Dan and Sharon are the parents of five children and 17 grandchildren. When I was in kindergarten, my parents moved every single year until I was in 10th grade. So every year I went to a different school, went to a different ward, different house, and they did it for one reason. They wanted to, um, they wanted to save my brother. And when I say save my brother, is because uh, early on in life, he really struggled with making some good decisions in life. When I was 12, I, um, I was at, so I, I grew up in Modesto, California, and when I was 12 years old, I was at a Warriors basketball game. And when I came home that night, my uh, parents were sitting around the table, they were pretty distraught, and they asked me to sit down and they and told me that my uh, brother Eric ran away from home. He was 13. A couple days later, my dad finally tracked him down. He was in San Francisco, and um, there started a lifelong battle for him with drugs and alcohol. And um, he is 63 now and just got out of rehab for probably the 15th time a year ago. And so my parents moved hoping that every time they moved, he'd finally run into some good kids, some good friends, and it would, it would change his life. But uh, unfortunately, that never happened. But what it did for me is it put me in front of new people, new friends every single year how many of you went to a new school before? It's not that fun when you're the new kid. Uh, every single year I had to go through that. And you spend the first three or four months just trying to find, you know, one friend that you can hang out with. 
finally, when I was a sophomore, they stayed put, and I got to go uh, essentially all four years to the same high school. Um, I was always into sports, so I played basketball for the most part. Water polo was uh, my second sport, and then uh, I was always an avid water skier, which has changed over the years to wakeboarding, surfing, all the things that kids do nowadays, <laughs> which is fun. I like to surf too, but still nothing like skiing. Um, I was, so even though I didn't follow in my brother's footsteps, I can't say that I, you know, was this perfect child. Let me tell you one thing that I'm not very good at, and that is sitting in a classroom <laughs> and listening to a teacher. Me and school did not get along very well. And uh, I, um, I remember when I was a, when I was a senior, um, I had to take an English class. And the first thing they did was hand me this book that I had to read within the next 30 days and write, write a book report. And the book was called Beowulf. I looked at that book and I just said, I'm sorry. Uh, this, uh, this didn't really spark a lot of interest in me. So I ended up reading the back cover and writing my report. <laughs> Somehow I got out of that, that uh, class by the skin of my teeth. But what I did learn about myself is that if I'm interested in something, I dive in and I get really interested and I'm a great learner if it's something that I'm interested in. I have a tough time um, if I'm not interested in it to pretend I'm interested in it and, and do well. It's just a, uh, it's an ADD thing, uh, I think. Well, I went to a very interesting high school. Um, what you did is you went to school and you went, the first thing you did is you went into this thing called ad or advisory period. And at my school, you had a teacher and a classroom, but you went anytime during the day. Like most schools, you know, oh, I got English first period, science second period. No, we didn't. You could go to any of your classes anytime during the day, as long as the teacher was there. So when you went into this advisory, you got this sheet of paper and you would look for your teacher and they would tell you what hours they were gonna teach the class. You'd write it down and that was your schedule for the day. It was a very open school. Um, it was all petitions. So. You, you'd have four or five classes where you were just divided by a petition. In fact, if you sat in back, you could look around the petition and see your friends in the other class. Um, and the only way they knew you went to school is that you signed in on a piece of paper for every time you went to class. I probably shouldn't admit to this, but it was easy enough to run around in the first hour of school and just sign in all your classes, and then I could go spend the day playing basketball and swimming. We had this awesome swimming pool at my school, and uh, I was always in diving or swimming throughout the day, and so, you know, teachers just left you alone. Well, 
that was a great school for those who found those things they were interested in and dove in. Um, my problem is I grew up really poor. My parents struggled, struggled, struggled. There was no money. I remember several times being on welfare. And the way I knew we were on welfare is everything back then was labeled Deseret Industries and it tasted weird. It just wasn't that good. Um, but watching my parents just struggle and struggle, one thing that hit me early on in life was I just said, I, I can't do that. i got to figure out a better way. And um, watching my dad, who probably had six or seven jobs that I can kind of remember off the top of my head, but the one that he kind of stuck with through my high school years was he was a door-to-door -door Kirby vacuum salesman. <laughs> and uh, I, actually, he did pretty good for vacuum sales, but it still you know, barely put food on the table and paid the bills each month. And, and again, they just, they just struggled. So I was always trying to find something in school that would teach me how to be a businessman or how to make money or something like that never could find that so I get out of school and the first thing I think of is okay um, I'm probably not going to go into college so what am I going to do next so this is when me and uh, God had our first real talk and I said what what am I supposed to do here and that's when I was really inspired to get out and go on a mission and so I hustled up I did my papers as fast as I could, and I actually entered the MTC five days before I turned 19. So they, you couldn't be on your mission at 19, but you could be, or excuse me, at 18, but you could be in the MTC at 18. And I ended up getting called to uh, Columbia, South Carolina, um, which was about as foreign as you can go and still stay in the United States. When I got there and started hearing some of these southern accents, I was like, where am I at? Is it the United States? Uh, absolutely loved it, loved the people. But it's here, again, where I realized that when I'm interested in something, I just dive in. And I did. And I dove in deep. I, I was reading, I probably read Jesus the Christ three or four times on my mission. Any book that I could get. Um, I just studied. I just wanted to know everything, mainly not only for myself, but I also felt I needed, I had that obligation if I was going to go out and teach somebody else and want them to, you know, join our church. And so it was, it was my, it was my experience to really understand um, my Heavenly Father, what this whole plan was all about, and, uh, and get that real strong relationship with Him. Well, now it's time to come home, and uh, I'm, uh, it's, it's March of 1982, yes, I'm an old dude, and I, uh, I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do when I get home? I, I think I still can go, you know, and talk to some coaches and probably play basketball, and maybe they'll forgive my, um, my high school grades uh, you know, since I've been on a mission, right? And uh, a few years before my mission, I had spent some time at the BYU basketball camp 
and had some pretty strong offers and good looks there. So I'm thinking, all right, I'll just go back to, at the time, the coach was Frank Arnold, and I'll just talk to him. Well, he was fired while I was on my mission. So when I got home, there was no one to talk to. While I was out on my mission, my sister had a, had a, um, a roommate that she was assigned to. Her name was Sharon, and she um, got, um, they were roommates at BYU. And while I was out, she came to visit my family uh, a couple weeks during the, one of the summer breaks. We were really unique in one thing. My dad had won a uh, video recorder. And, I mean, you know, we're talking about the 80s. I mean, the thing was this big and, you know, except, but it was, one, and it was only, I think we're the only family I ever knew that had a video recorder. To record it was on this massive cassette thing and the PCR tapes were huge. But our family always just turned it on when people came over and, and we just, you know, had a good time. And so my sister and, and her friend Sharon um, just made all these recordings. Um, they were lip syncing to songs and just dancing around and having a good time. So I'm, I literally get home from my mission, um, my flight, everything, probably around five o'clock at night. I walk down to the church, meet with the state president, get released. Walk back home, grab a little bite to eat, and my sister says, oh, you gotta, you gotta meet my friend and, uh, and let me, you know, show you what we did over the summer. So she throws in this videotape. And so I'm watching these two and I'm like, okay, they're out of control, these <laughs> things, you know, but they're having fun. And my sister says, so would you, you want to meet her? I said, well, I guess I'll meet her. So uh, we're watching that through the night and then, you know, it's time to go to bed. And as a good missionary, returned missionary, first thing I do when I hit my room is, I kneel down to say my prayers, right? And if you've ever heard of thunder and lightning in a prayer, it literally just struck me. I mean, there was, it just like, crash. You're going to marry Sharon. And I'm like, I'm like, just got home four hours ago, and now, you're telling me uh, I'm going to marry this girl. So uh, we're in Modesto, California, and we got to drive my sister back to school. So I don't know, it's probably a day or two later. We drive back to Provo. It's about a 12, 14 hour drive. We ended up getting to Provo at um, about 4 o'clock in the morning. And my sister runs in and she wakes up her roommate, Sharon and says, you gotta come meet my family. So Sharon comes out, 4 a.m., imagine, right? She's, uh, she's half blind, so she had these glasses that were <laughs> seven feet thick, and you know, 4 a.m. And I'm standing there, I'm going, well, there's my wife. <laughs> and uh, so, we talked for a second, and then uh, we ended up going to our hotel or wherever we went, and then came back around 12 or 1 o'clock that afternoon, and okay, she had taken a shower, got dressed, she was up, it's okay, all right, she looks pretty good now, okay, I can deal with this. 
we started talking and having uh, some, you know, it's kind of fun. And I said, hey, do you want to just go out and get some dinner tonight? So, so we went out that night to dinner. And all of a sudden, we're talking. We're talking about stuff that I would never, you know, futures, all this. Well, we leave uh, the next day back to California. And I, um, <laughs> it's gonna sound funny, but I went to the mall and I bought a ring. And it was $13 a month for the next 22 years. <laughs> I didn't even have a job. I can't believe they gave me credit. And I got in the car and I drove back to Provo. And six days after I got home from my mission, I was engaged. And in June, three months later, we were married. Something I would have never done, never had any plan to do, except for when God asks you to do something. You know, if he says jump, you say how high on the way up. And that's how it was. I knew I was supposed to marry her. Fast forward. 41 years later, 18 grandkids almost. The next one should be here this week, number 18. Um, five kids. It's been actually a, a pretty good ride, all, all told. So now back up just a little bit. So now we're married, we're flat broke. I, I don't have any jobs, right? I'm just trying to figure out I'm not going to school, and no such thing as a school loan back then. So it's not like I just go borrow money and go jump into school. And I had an experience when I was 15. I was driving around with my dad, and he had a friend with him named Dave Hanna. And Dave was a pretty wealthy guy. And what was interesting is in our ward boundaries, in Modesto, it wasn't like Idaho and Utah where boundaries are, you know, maybe a square mile or like in Utah, square blocks. And we took in huge, we were miles and miles for one ward. So it took in not only um, us poor people, <laughs> but it took in this really wealthy area too. Dave lived in the wealth area. So it was kind of unique as a kid to go to church and I've seen some of the the, the richest guys in my town own businesses and car dealerships and everything and um, and here we are broke and I'm wondering if mom's gonna be able to feed us Sunday dinner so I'm in the back seat I'm 15 years old I'm listening to these guys talk and and they're just talking and finally it turns out to a conversation about money and investing and Dave tells my dad that he made $30,000 that month as in the stock market. And I'm 15, okay? I got a job, I'm making $2.50 an hour, and I have pretty good math brain, so I quickly calculate. He made $30,000 in one month. I would have to work six and a half years to make $30,000. He did it in 30 days. <laughs> and something clicked at 15 years old. I said, somehow, some way, I gotta be a stockbroker. <laughs> and so now we're married, 
fast forward, now we're married, and I've never been able to get that out of my head. I gotta be a stockbroker. But who's gonna hire me? I barely got out of high school, don't have a college degree, nobody knows anything about me. Um, my jobs were collecting shopping carts, and you ever heard something like a, a cleanup on aisle three? That was me. Dan, uh, somebody threw up on aisle six. And here, you know, I'm a married man. I'm 21 years old, and I'm collecting shopping carts and cl cleaning up cute. <laughs> at night, I would get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, go down to the local paper, um, get in this big van, and then go deliver the bundles of papers to newspaper deliver kids, right? Then on the weekends, I would go and I would get a stack of flyers that I had to go put out door to door. So these were my jobs. Finally, um, a guy in our ward opened up a restaurant in, uh, in Ceremony, which is just outside of San Francisco. And he says, hey, do you want to come and be an assistant manager? <laughs> Giddy up. Yeah, anything that I can, you know, put a few bucks in, in my pocket. So we moved to San Francisco, and I ran these restaurants. And the only good part about it, so they were called the Strawberry Creamery. And they had, and we served ice cream, sundaes, and sandwiches, and it was good. But, and the good part about it was, we could eat as much as we wanted. So part of my salary was really eating. Well, unfortunately, we probably ate too much because one day he calls me up and says, we're closing the store tomorrow, we're broke. <laughs> I'm like, oh, great. So I moved back from San Francisco, back to Modesto, and I start selling Kirby vacuums with my dad, going door to door. Brutal. I recommend that you never <laughs> take that job. Well, I still can't get it out of my mind that I want to be a stockbroker. So I'm just, so I go around to all these different financial firms. And finally I get the attention of this one branch manager. And I think the only thing that, that at least gave me a head, head start is he said, have you got any experience with people? And I said, yes. I rode a bike and doc knocked on north doors for two years. I know how to talk to people. So he says, okay, we have, a, we have like five tests. They're aptitude tests. They're all these different tests that we have to give you, personality. And if you pass those, we might be able to hire you. So I took those tests. Somehow I passed them. They said, okay, we'll give you a shot. But then the big challenge comes is now um, I've got to take the Series 7 test. So that's the stockbroker's exam. It's a massive, beastly test. Um, some say that it's equivalent to a, a finance degree because of all the things you gotta learn just to take the test. The test is all day long, two, um, two three-hour shifts. And so, um, but remember, what's my one skill? When I'm interested in something, I dive in. And that's what I did. Man, I dove in four, six, eight, ten hours a day. I was reading everything. 
and I was just loving it because this is what I was interested in my whole life. How do you make money? How do you invest? How do you do all these things? How do people get wealthy? All this stuff. Well, I ended up taking the exam and they told me, look, if you get a, you only need a 70 to pass. If you get a 70, 71, man, just be happy. The average score is about 73 that people, you know, pass. And I said, oh man, I can't fail. If you, you guys know the story of Cortez? You ever heard that story? Cortez comes over to huh. the Americas way back. He's from Spain. Okay. Yeah. I get my spike hits. Okay. So he's he is uh, we're on, he's on the American continent, and um, there's obviously natives there, and it looks like they're going to have to fight. And all the Cortez Cortezes and men. <laughs> how do you yeah, say that? In my movie of my spike hits. Okay. Says. Uh, he says um, they, they want to leave. And so the story is Cortez goes and he burns his ships so that it's either fight or die. But that's how I felt. I, I had nowhere to go. I'm done some curvy vacuums. I have no money. I've got to pass this test. And so that was a good inspiration and a drive to just make sure that, that I passed that test. Well. I got a 93. I cruised that thing. Here's this kid, barely gets out of high school, can't really stand being in a classroom. But when I get it, I get it. When I dive in, I dive in. Just like I did on my mission. So I passed this test. They hire me. Um, 18 months later, I left the firm and I opened my own. And I grew it to five offices, 60 reps, all over the state of Idaho, and um, and then I ended up selling those so that I could do so I could do my own thing again. I just really didn't love managing sixty guys. But what I what I learned along that way is that if you set your goals, if you focus on something, um, and and I'm talking about whether it's mission, spiritual. Um, mental, physical, uh, financial, it is just absolutely amazing what happens in your life. And one of the things I did before I left on my mission is, is I just said, I'm going to be a successful missionary somehow, some way. I, there will be no one that can outwork me. And that's really what it would boil down. When we got on our bikes to ride, I mean, I was riding with a with a mission. I gotta get to that street. I gotta get to those people. We gotta talk to these people. And I, I was probably um, almost harder on myself because I just didn't want to waste time. They're like, I got two years. I gotta do this thing. And I need to learn all I can. And I need to read and read and read and study. And I need to make sure my prayers and everything. So, um, so I, I learned how to set goals early. But when we got off, when my wife and I first got married, and I'm selling Kirby's, I found this book, and it's called The Goal Getter. This is from 1984, I think. And what it did is it, it, it just, it basically told you how to set the goals, and then it had you write the goals. And then it even had you put um, 
pictures so that it was very visual, right? And, um, and so I spent a lot of time on this goal book. And I was trying to see how can I be successful in this life? How can I teach my family? How can I be a better person? How can I help others? I mean, just it, it, this thing goes through the spiritual side, your family side, the, the um, service side. I mean, this thing was, this thing was just laid out. All, all the athletic stuff. So remember, I love basketball, right? In high school, I could fly. After high school, marriage, few years, couldn't fly so so much, and so um, one of my goals was, okay, I gotta I gotta dunk it again. I want to get to a point where I can just slam that ball. So what I did is I put in a this guy's name Spud Webb. He's only five three or five four, but it was inspiration to me to say, okay, I gotta I want to do that. And so I worked and worked and worked, and lo and behold, started playing city basketball, and there you go, Dan could dunk again. <laughs> I also grew up water skiing, love water skiing. Started doing tournaments. You guys ever seen a water ski tournament? I so think yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they put six buoys in the water, and the boat goes straight through them, and you have to ski around those six buoys. And every time you make it through, they shorten the rope and shorten it and shorten it. So the guy who makes it through and gets the most buoys with the shortest rope wins. Well, it's quite a technique, and, but one of the things that I admired, there was a guy named Michael Shalander, pro skier, and what he would do when he went around the ball is he would put his shoulder in the water and then just pivot around his shoulder and, and crank up and go. I'm like, dude, that is sweet. <laughs> I want to do that. So what I do, I set a goal. I said, I got to learn how to put my shoulder in the water when I'm skiing. So there's, there's Michael Shalander, and then that's me. Not a good camera, but one of the things that even my friends to this day know me for is just being able to just Put my shoulder in the water and just get turning as fast as as possible i know some of this is very outside of church uh, spiritualness but it'll 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 have a point anyway i did that for everything um i wanted a bmw i wanted a a, a van that could pull a boat by the way that's ski nautique <laughs> you you I wanted I wanted to go scuba diving so I'm just putting in all these things um, look at the video cameras at the time I mean it was just but um, and then I wanted a computer <laughs> can you believe that no one had a computer a personal computer in their home now obviously everybody does I'm a drummer so I wanted a new new drum set and uh, I wanted to travel and all that stuff. And then um, when it came to my family, I wanted to make sure that all my kids had an opportunity to go on a mission. And the only one that did was my youngest, or my second daughter, but my three sons and my other daughter all went on missions. I wanted to make sure that 
if and when I was had a calling that I could that I could take you. Um, I wanted to make sure that my kids, when they got married, um, you know, one thing that you got to be careful of is you you can't set goals for other people. You can only set goals to like my goal was to teach my kids enough so that they would want to get married in the temple, and they all did. Um, one thing that um, happens in life is, you know, life gets in the way. I've got one son who's kind of decided to go a little different direction. Great kid, married, everything's good, but just, you know, right now church isn't his, his foremost thing. But one of my goals was that if and when any of my kids decided to take a little bit different path, that I would still love them, be there for them, uh, support them, and uh, and then be hopefully the example that they can come around anytime. So I am just an absolute firm believer in setting goals. And I want to just tell you guys something. The one thing that I did wrong about goals is I didn't think big enough. You just cannot believe the power that that um, we have within us um, and of course I think it's God but you'll hear other people talk about the universe and all this I, I know it's God but he wants us to be happy he wants us to to um, um, to set goals to, to be better than we really think we can be and so one of the things that was really and and this is this is Financial, but it can be it can be um, likened to anything. But you might relate to this more because it's financial. But when when I was so broke, I remember thinking, if I ever could just make forty thousand dollars a year, <laughs> imagine this. If I could just make forty thousand dollars a year, I'll be the happiest, wealthiest guy on the planet. And so my first goals were you know, $40,000. And again, one of the things I did wrong is I didn't set the goal high enough. I've had, to, and it's okay, but I've had to move that 40 times over the years. It's just, ama just amazing what opens to you when, when, um, when you set those goals. And same way with my relationship with my Heavenly Father. So I'm gonna end with this last story. Are we good? Yep. Um, it's a tough one because we were having our sixth child and uh, we went to the doctor, normal doctor's checkup, does an ultrasound. Doctor leaves the room, comes back a few minutes later, a little bit, you know, somber, and he says, um, your baby's anencephalic. And we're like, okay, I've never heard that term. I don't even know what that means. So I said, what does that, what does that mean? He said, well, basically her, her skull didn't develop. And so, you know, she really doesn't have anything covering her brain. And I'm like, okay, well, this is, this is going to be unique and interesting, but all right. We're going to have a child that's going to, you know, take a lot of care, and we can do it. 
And I said, well, okay, well, tell us, you know, some of the things we're going to need to know, you know. He goes, I don't think you understand. It's, it's not survivable. And we're like, oh, okay. He said, she likely won't be born alive. And so um, he sends us home. Obviously, we're just devastated. We're, we're hitting our knees, you know, just heavenly father, what are we going to do here? This is about five months into the pregnancy. And so um, we struggle with this for about two and a half more months. And finally, my wife just said, it's time. I just feel like we need to just go, you know, have her. So made an appointment, got to the hospital. They induced her and, uh, and Jenna, she lived uh, 32 minutes. And it was one of the most amazingly spiritual times in my life to hold my little girl um, and to know that I know her, that um, she's, she's, not, she's not gone. She's just in another place for a little while. She's been one of the biggest motivations for me and, and really all our kids to, uh, to know that someday Jenna's going to be with us. Every Christmas, she'd be 24 this year. How old are you guys? So she's your age. You could have married her. <laughs> she, um, she's, she would be 24 this year. She, um, every Christmas, we hang her stocking. And every Christmas, we all <clears throat> write a note to her and put it in the stocking. <clears throat> and then Christmas Eve, we read her. So she's been a big, big part of our life. I can't imagine what people go through without the gospel. To know that this thing's got a bigger plan. To know that our Heavenly Father's got this thing dialed in. And we may have our trials and our stresses and our questions. Um, but when we seek Him and when we look for ways to um, listen to Him, he, he's there. And this time with Jenna was just, it was, like I say, just miraculous. We went home sad. We had a funeral the next day. But we've been just, we've been at peace. And every year, we go out on August 28th, and we, we take a picture, kneeling by her little headstone. And we've just got year after year it's kind of fun because you know our kids were this little and now we're bringing grandkids and and uh, everybody knows who Jen is she's talked about just like one of the family anyway um, so if I have one message for you guys is I, I, I want you to just go home and think that you are more capable and more incredible than you give yourself credit for most likely it doesn't matter if your goals are, are physical, financial, spiritual. God will help you reach those. And if you focus on those things, you'll be amazed what you can accomplish. Obviously, we hope that you're focusing on some spiritual side of life and realizing that no matter what success you have here, it's kind of left behind at the end of the day. But in the meantime, you can help so many people. 
you know, the church, um, the, the, the church, we kind of teach that, you know, money isn't everything, da 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 da, da which we fully understand, but but it's it's because of tithing, it's because of fast talk we help so many people. The reason why there's buildings and temples is because somebody wrote a check. So there's nothing wrong with finding success as long as you always credit where that comes from and give back and never miss those opportunities to help others. I have a nonprofit, it's called Peace and Prosperity, and we help single moms who've been through a divorce or some other situation get back on their feet, get some education. I hired one in Phoenix to do my, she's Spanish, she does my Spanish videos on, on my YouTube channel. And uh, it's just changed her life. Five kids, single mom, and just to be able to have to, to this, this, um, this opportunity for her to not only have just a job, but a really good job that she can feel good about and be proud about. And I love helping people like that. Anyway, I just leave you with my testimony that if you just spend time trying to find out what God wants for you in your life, that you'll find it. And I leave it with you.